This is the Pain Information Network, and this is Episode 8. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be continuation on controlled substances. Uh, as I mentioned, that's a huge subject. We touched on opioids. We'll be revisiting that. And this is Rule 4. You've got to know thy meds, and you've got to know thy categories. And today's category is going to be benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are uh, a group of medications that were... Uh, designed and uh, developed in the 1950s to help with anxiety, uh, situational depression, uh, to help with sleep, and have just taken on a life of their own. They're some of the most popular medications that are prescribed in the world. And in the 1970s, they were the most popular prescription out there. Started with Librium in 1955. Chlordiazepoxide is the other name. That's a generic name. We all know Valium, the generic is diazepam, Xanax, which is a praesalam, clonopin, which is clonazepam, and lorazepam, which is Ativan. Now, these medications have a purpose. However, they don't have the purpose that I think society um, has uh, embraced them for. Some people think that they are the sleeping aid. That is the medication they need to sleep. Others need it because they have anxiety and panic disorder. Some people need it as just to kind of help them relax, and others <clears throat> believe that this this is an important part of their life, and they really couldn't get along without them. It's not uncommon in my practice to see people that have been on benzodiazepines, particularly uh, Prazolam or Xanax, for over 10 years. It's ridiculous. Um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine stood up at one of their annual meetings, and this is important. Uh, they stood up and they said there's really no place for benzodiazepines in contemporary medicine. It might be true. We have other ways to treat situational depression and anxiety. We have other ways to help with panic. And if we do prescribe these drugs and we believe that there is an indication for them, let's just say uh, a loss of someone very close to you, it's not a crutch and it shouldn't be uh, prescribed without an exit plan, that exit plan being two to four weeks. They're also sometimes prescribed as a muscle relaxer. Well, we've got better muscle relaxers. These drugs um, uh, can go right through the lineup, uh, the big three that we talked about on our last episode, that being uh, physical dependence, addiction, and tolerance. They can they can develop fast with these drugs. Um, the grip of addiction, particularly with some of the more potent benzodiazepines and those that have been on them for a prolonged period of time, can't be understated. These drugs can't be stopped abruptly. The risk of seizures and multiple complications can occur. So um, if you're on these medications and you say, you know, I want to change the way I look at life, uh, maybe try something different, you have to talk it over with your doctor or provider. You cannot do this yourself. Now, um, let's look. Let, let's look at um, why these are prescribed. Patients come into the office, and they they have a life event, or they have multiple life events. They're having trouble getting through their activities of daily living. Well, um, these drugs originally designed for the purpose of anxiolysis or to diminish anxiety, uh, can be easily prescribed. They're readily available. They're generic, and they're cheap. 
They are much better than barbiturates, which were mommy's little helper, so they were described many years ago. Um, and so we have these drugs that are helpful for anxiety, and, and people believe they sleep better. Well, sleep uh, is a big subject. Um, they actually don't help with sleep. They interfere with sleep architecture. They don't allow you to get to stage four deep sleep. Um, and patients that are in pain, they tend to sit in this alpha-2 intrusion or this kind of light sleep. And sleep architecture never allows them uh, to develop uh, that refreshing sleep that helps them think clearly the next day. Benzodiazepines uh, add to that. They also reduce serotonin. That can lead to a little more depression. You can have a rebound effect. Um, in other words, everything can get worse if you abruptly discontinue or discontinue them over time because the new norm for the person that was taking them over a prolonged period of time is to feel that drug. So the effects of these drugs, uh, when discontinued, can be uh, prolonged. So <clears throat> when are they Rxed and why are they Rxed? Well, it's a... It's a matter between the individual who's going to take these medications and their provider, but it's got to be talked through. Because what happens here is these drugs can cause memory disturbance, sleep disturbance, as we just talked about, and they can be habit-forming. So take them carefully and take them with a, a bit of understanding that they do have side effects. Uh, now, for generalized anxiety and depression, we have better drugs. We have antidepressants that I think most in the medical community would uh, agree uh, probably work better than benzodiazepines with uh, less risk. So <clears throat> to wrap it up, this is a controlled substance, these benzodiazepines. Uh, let's understand them. They probably don't help that much with pain. Uh, they may make things worse. And uh, the uh, potential for more of a downside than an upside is absolutely there. So... <clears throat> um, Think of alternatives and think of healthy ways to approach trouble with sleep, trouble with anxiety, and trouble with depression. Do you get enough exercise, uh, weight management? Um, do you uh, have trouble with uh, uh, sleep apnea? Have you talked that over with your doctor? Have you had a sleep study? Have you actually looked at what might be the root cause of your situational anxiety and depression and find other ways of managing, particularly with cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, that's uh, the way we talk things through. Uh, do we have a support system? Do we have family members? And do we have a socialization that helps with this? Do we have a plan? Do we have benchmarks like I talked about at last uh, uh, podcast three six nine and twelve months where are we headed with things because i i think if you start these benzodiazepines we better not be looking at more than a month or two unless there's a real good reason to, to be on these and do we have an exit strategy we should have an exit strategy with about every controlled substance that we prescribe if we can't do it we can't do it but um, there has to be a compelling reason to not be able to see an end and that really, once again, the light at the end of the tunnel is not necessarily a truck. Next part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about epidural management for spinal pain. We had a listener ask the question of uh, uh, what is an epidural and 
what's it for and who should get it and who shouldn't get it and what are the risks and that's a good question a lot of people uh, have these performed throughout the United States and the world as being one of the most common procedures in the practice of pain medicine and so it deserves it deserves its own discussion but it should be broken up I'm going to do part one today talk a little bit about the anatomy and uh, the types of epidurals and uh, we'll continue the discussion in future podcasts so most of us are familiar with an epidural uh, through the uh, labor and delivery process. Uh, an epidural catheter is placed in a special area and local anesthetic is infused and it cuts down on labor pain. Uh, it probably decreases the stress to the baby and there's a lot of advantages. Uh, uh, there's some dis discussion about it. disadvantages, whether it causes increased um, incidence of C-sections and the like. That's not what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about epidural management as it relates to spinal pain. Okay, the anatomy of the spine is kind of poorly understood. Um, I usually have to do a little bit of education. First of all, there's uh, three parts to it. There's the anterior compartment and posterior compartment, and then right in the middle where all the nerves are. So um, the anterior compartment is where the, we're going to call it the front part of the spine, is where the disc is at. That's the cushion. Um, the, the disc is familiar to so many people. Everybody thinks a back problem comes from discogenic pain. Well, it, it can. It really can. But there's two other parts in the back that deserve discussion, and those are called facets. There's a right one and a left one, and they're like knuckles. They are uh, articulating surfaces. They have hyaline. They, uh, they are... Um, painful. Uh, they're well innervated or they have nerves around them that have uh, sensory uh, characteristics that can cause pain. And they're probably attributable to at least 40% of back pain. That's, that's a pretty good estimate. Um, the pain from the facets usually stops above the knee. It may go down a little further, but it usually stops above the knee. It's made worse by arching your back or extension, side bending, side to side. And it's um, gardener's back. It, you, you're out in the garden, you're doing fine. All of a sudden you twist, or you're lifting wrong or something like that, and you're down, down for a few days. Your back is killing you. Well, you don't have those classic signs that go shooting down the leg like you would with nerve pain, but it's just as painful, if not worse. So those two facets are important targets for a pain management uh, intervention. But what about the disc? Well, the disc is... Uh, a cushion and around the third decade of life it starts losing uh, some of its nutrients it gets by osmosis so uh, through time and life stresses and life's abuses like tobacco smoking it tends to start breaking down so about the fourth fifth and sixth decade um, <clears throat> most folks are at risk for that disc to be problematic when the disc either ruptures or uh, uh, spits out a little fragment or starts bulging, it can push on a nerve. The nerve comes out a little hole on the side, and it's called a foramen. If that foramen is encroached by the two joints in the back or the disc up front, you can get what's called radicular pain or pain down the leg. That radicular pain follows a pattern called uh, dermatomal. Um, it, it's usually a pretty characteristic pattern. <clears throat> like outside of the foot, the bottom of the foot, the calf, 
the great toe. And you'll see us tapping on the patellar reflex and the uh, Achilles reflex as another reflection that there's a nerve compression problem. So what are we going to do? <clears throat> we got the two joints in the back and we got the disc up front. All these structures can cause pain. So as a broad brush stroke, sometimes we go on to epidural management of spinal pain. How we do it is we uh, identify um, by physical exam and appropriate imaging, usually MRI, CT, that there is a problem. Uh, I don't think plain x-rays are enough, but uh, they might do in a pinch. Uh, and then we decide what we're going to do. Well, <clears throat> let's just say that nerve is encroached on. Say it's stenosis, or there's just not a lot of room for that nerve from life's uh, arthritic changes or the disc uh, height might be lost, a number of different problems. Well, we'll go in and we'll uh, place epidural medication in there to decrease the inflammatory component uh, and henceforth decrease pain. So what are we injecting? Well, we are either injecting a steroid, a special steroid, local anesthetic, combination of both, saline, preservative-free and steroid, or uh, uh, preservative-free saline and local anesthetic. Depends on the goal of the injection. Sometimes if we're doing the injection uh, to, to numb the nerve up only, we'll use local anesthetic, maybe steroid as well. Um, sometimes we use contrast, sometimes we don't. Um, it's a pretty good idea to use contrast, and we don't call it dye, we call it contrast. So we can see kind of where we're at. It's important that this needle that we place um, is in the right place, and the contrast uh, gives us a good um, idea of where we are when we look up on the x-ray screen. All right, there's three types of uh, epidurals. There's interlaminar, <clears throat> not Translaminar. Translaminar is an incorrect term. Interlaminar. That means it's between a couple of bony structures. That's going to be the most common. That's uh, 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 performed under x-ray guidance. These need to be performed under x-ray guidance. Next is a caudal approach. This is also a very common way to uh, approach the epidural space. That's by uh, introducing the medicine down by the tailbone area. And then there's a transferaminal injection. That's where you isolate a nerve or two that comes out of the frame in that little hole in the side. And once it's isolated and it's uh, uh, identified using contrast, because you can't really see nerves on x-ray, the contrast outlines it. Um, dense application of local anesthetic or local anesthetic and steroid um, is placed there. And it's not only a diagnosis, but potentially a treatment. It's, a, it's an important injection, and it is uh, technically more difficult. So who does these things? Unfortunately, many people do these things. So this is rule two. Um, you have to have a diagnosis. So we've looked at the MRI, uh, the CT. Uh, we've uh, performed adequate physical examination. You shouldn't have these done unless somebody's examined you. Um, you're not dealing with a technician. You're dealing with a uh, expert provider and you should have somebody that is uh, properly trained and understands how to do these but more importantly when not to do these injections you also have to understand that uh, there are potential complications and risk um, it, but they're they're way overplayed uh, dr oz did a uh, 2013 sh uh, show on epidurals that uh, was unbalanced um, 
I think I've done probably over 40,000. The incidence of complications in well-trained hands is very, very, very low. Uh, bleeding, infection, nerve damage, I suppose we have to say that. We have to say that sometimes the medicine can go into a small little artery and can cause damage or further nerve damage. We have to say that. <clears throat> sometimes we have to... Um, uh, say they can cause a headache, particularly if the needle goes just a little too far in the wrong place. But we we can identify these problems and usually handle them uh, in the appropriate uh, uh, manner uh, if if well trained. Where are these done? Well, hospital, ambulatory surgery center, and office based. Uh, costs vary dramatically where you have these done. So. Um, I uh, hope that was helpful for step one and part one. Uh, next uh, 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 part on epidurals, we're going to talk about what the three different uh, epidural management uh, uh, procedures involved, what you can expect, how long they, they should last, what you um, might see um, <clears throat> in a real-life scenario with different types of uh, disease problems of the spine, and uh, practical application. All right, I hope that was helpful. I'm going to round this podcast out um, with our jewel or junk segment. Um, the segment looks at a process in medicine or, in particular, pain medicine. And uh, it might be a procedure, it might be uh, a type of medication, it might be a thought on uh, what works and what doesn't work, and uh, decides whether it's practical or not. I'm going to choose today electronic health records because no one's talking about them. Electronic health records are pretty much in their infancy. I would think about it uh, in the evolution of the automobile. It's a Model A right now. They're trying to get better, and they're trying to talk to each other, but that has been a challenge. So we used to walk around <clears throat> with uh, medical records. Uh, we called them a chart that had uh, different tabs, and we could kind of like separate x-rays from uh, laboratories, from health or history, from uh, physical exam, that sort of thing. It's not so easy anymore. <clears throat> also, these electronic health records are not as easy to distribute amongst uh, other providers and the patients uh, have a little trouble wrapping their hands around what they're trying to say in this electronic health record. A lot of the information is just cloned. It looks like the same thing over and over because that's what they do. A lot of them do that. They'll just spit out what the last visit said, uh, the same medications, the same allergies. And, well, things change. So we have to be really careful when we uh, talk to our provider and we talk to uh, the nurse that's taking our information on intake and tell them if something has changed. I can't tell you how many times uh, patients will come in and they don't write down their medicines. And I'm about ready to do a procedure on them. And I find out through a careful process of redundancy that they were just put on a blood thinner. Uh, well, <laughs> that could have been a problem. So uh, please um, try to keep a, a rolling um, information set on yourself to go over with whoever's putting in the information into the computer. Unfortunately, the days of just leaning forward and uh, talking to the patient back and forth and 
than just documenting his, what is so comfortable with this uh, pen to paper uh, is going away. We've got a computer screen and we've got a keyboard, and it's, uh, it's awkward sometimes to be talking to a patient and then document, then talk to the patient, then hands back on the keyboard. Sometimes we lose all eye contact. So try to maintain <clears throat> a little patience, and I'm, we are too, as we tr- get the evolution of this electronic health record in place. So as a jeweler, as a junk, it's going to be fantastic when it's up to speed. But it's not up to speed right now. It's coming along. Um, talk it over with your healthcare provider. It's really important. If you're uncomfortable or you need more time or eye contact or something is different that you don't think is documented, have them look at their record. Um, if something's changed in your medical history, have them look in your um, problem list. If you, for example, example triumphantly quit smoking, um, you should be commended. Get it in that health record. All right. Hope that's helpful. That wraps it up for episode eight. And thanks for joining us. Uh, please leave a review on iTunes. Please, please, please. This helps with our visibility so more people can uh, find us, see us, listen to us, and give us uh, uh, their feedback. Also, if you could visit paininformation.com and leave a suggestion for future episodes, that'd be really helpful too. I'd uh, like to know what you think. Just, you know, send me a little side note. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. This is at a. This is an inf- information network. Please talk over yeah, real-life uh, medical issues with a qualified provider. And uh, uh, dr- drop us a line. We read every one of your, uh, your emails. So have a, have a great day, a great week, and we'll catch you on the other end.